If you are like most engineers, you probably prefer using open source. You may even prefer using tools like Elk and Grafana for observability due to their ease of use and built-in community. But what if you could use these same tools without sacrificing enterprise-grade scale, support, and security? With logs.io, you get the best of both worlds. A fully managed service that offers complete cloud observability on one unified platform. Log management and cloud SIEM based on Elk and infrastructure monitoring based on Grafana. The open source you love at the scale you need. Sign up today for a 14-day free trial at logs.io, L-O-G-Z slash G-T-C. And for your chance to receive your free logs.io t-shirt. Welcome to Greater Than Code, episode 174. This is a panel-only episode. I'm John Sowers, and I'm here with Shante Thurmond. Hey, everyone. Happy to be back. I'm going to introduce my great friend here, Rain Heinrich. Hello, Rain. Hi. Thank you. So this is a sort of special episode where we don't have a guest, uh, but we do have a topic for discussion, and the topic is resilience. So I wanted to start by asking each of you, what does resilience mean for you? That could be a definition of the word or stories or examples, whatever comes up when I ask you the question. Who wants to go first? I'll go. So for me, what always comes to mind with that word is like a, like a reed or a flexible tree that can bend with like the wind or the environment. So it doesn't resist being influenced by the environment it doesn't you know break under the force of the thing it just bends and then returns to its uh sort of natural orientation afterwards sort of as a way of things happening in the world affect you but then you're able to return to your homeostasis readily shante go that was a good one i feel like to me, you know, resiliency, I think of the word tenacity and grit and being able to cope or withstand something that you weren't maybe, that you didn't foresee. Um, it doesn't break you. It maybe perhaps makes you stronger. And I'm just going to introduce now early on is that whenever I think of the word resilience, I often tend to think about the book Anti-Fragile. Mm. So I heard two different things there. One is what's sometimes called resilience as rebound. So rebound from some trauma and the ability to return to a previous, you know, natural state or equilibrium. And the other is this idea that resilience is the ability to withstand unforeseen perturbations. Sometimes resilience is confounded with robustness, which is the ability to withstand foreseen perturbations. So when you build a robust software system, you design it to deal with expected inputs in a way that doesn't break, right? But resilience, I think, is more about unforeseen surprises. It's interesting. There are sort of, David Woods has this paper called Four Concepts for Resilience. And the four definitions of resilience he mentions are first, Resilience is rebound. Second, resilience is robustness. Third, 
is resilience as the opposite of realness, which is sort of like anti-fragile Shantae, uh, which is that rather than the failure mode being this sudden and catastrophic thing, that there's this graceful extensibility is the term of art, where the thing continues to work, just not quite as well as it's experiencing that event, right? So it, it doesn't just shatter. And then the fourth is the idea that these complex systems can sustain the ability to adapt to future surprises for long periods of time. So it's not just responding to today's surprise or tomorrow's surprise, it's longer term viability. So I got two sort of folk definitions of resilience, right? They're just what they mean to you. And that's totally valid, but it's interesting to me that I think he's captured there a lot of what people mean, the varieties of what people mean when they say resilience. Yeah, I like seeing that sort of enumerated out as those are these different aspects of it, because I think Shanti and, each, and I each picked up like one aspect of that, and it's nice to see a full list. Yeah. Shanti, when you mentioned yeah, you know, unforeseen or surprise, I think you hit on one of the most important facets for me personally. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking up David Woods now, and those are those are four interesting components of, of resiliency, right? And so I'm wondering if the definition, right, like the word can be flexible and, and applicable to any of any of those four things, or do you feel like all of them have to be there in order for it to be like a true depiction of resiliency? Yeah. So this is sort of an attempt to characterize popular ways that the term has been used. Woods himself really focuses on three and four. He actually thinks that two is sort of an anti-pattern or he he doesn't like conflating robustness with resilience basically the difference for him is that robustness is about known knowns and resilience is about unknown unknowns so robustness is about you build a thing to withstand the expected you know problems that it's going to encounter right you know you build a mars rover because you know what mars is like so it's robust to trying to traverse mars right resilience is about how you handle surprise, how you handle things you couldn't predict for him. Yeah. I love this. And he's, is he specifically David Woods? Is he a software engineer? No, he, he is a researcher and an academic. He sort of pioneered the discipline of resilience engineering as an academic field. Yeah. That's quite interesting. You know, one of, one of the thoughts before we had this conversation was, for example, should we should we assume that resilient people create and build resilient code? Mm. One of the mm. questions I Well, Woods would say that resilience in socio-technical systems comes from people. It's people's and our ability to make decisions that provide these systems with their adaptive capacity. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's interesting. That's, and I wonder yeah. if you could personally be non not terribly resilient, but still be able to think about a system in such a way that you could make it resilient. Yeah, well, you know, we contain multitudes, right? We can be personally resilient or not in all sorts of ways. You know, it's not a single static, like, quantity that represents our capacity to adapt in every situation, you know? Mm -hmm. Some of us are more resilient when it comes to, like, dealing with software failures than it are when it comes to personal relationships, let's say. One of the things I love about this conversation is how 
dually applicable most of the discussion is to both software or socio-technical systems and like to individual biological systems like people like i think and i I don't know if this is blanket applicable but i would imagine that most of the things that we are about to talk about are going to apply equally to a person managing their own internal state and their own life as Mm -hmm. to a person managing or a software system or operating within it rather yeah yeah ditto I would agree. I think it's quite an, it's a fascinating topic to dive into. This is something that these are, this is one of those topics that has been on my mind for quite some time. There was a period of my life, even before I had children, where I wanted to study resiliency. And basically, I was wondering, like, what made me so resilient and how I might be able to teach leaders how to do that and why it matters. And what kind of fell down the rabbit hole of that whole positive psychology framework and there is so much there and the bottom line was that you know resiliency is one of these sort of high performance indicators and skills that we do need for for leaders of the new school and i think if i'm applying this to like leadership and thinking about organizations and how they might consider this is um i think there's there's an old sort of belief you know that resilience was silent that resilience was to put your head down and keep going and not to complain and like more so like that gritness versus like a tenacity and a flexible and a bendy form of resiliency. And that it could be, it can show up in so many different ways. You know, I'm really interested in, in just having more conversations that involve resiliency as we build the next few versions of technology and get into this fourth industrial revolution. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned um, high performance. Are you familiar with the high performance organizations framework? A little bit. Like I've done, I've done research on it, but I couldn't. Mm-hmm. I can't recall it right now. So please, if you ha- if you are, yeah. please, let's talk. About it. So basically, the uh, HPO was an attempt to study how seemingly high performing organizations worked and what could be learned to that sort of generalizes what was discovered about specific cases, right? It sort of grew out as an alternative to, you know, Taylorism, command and control by the numbers management. And it covers things like organizational design and team composition and leadership and organizational strategy, innovation, like the whole the whole gamut, right? And one of the things it finds, for example, is that the teams that are the high, highest performing uh, tend to operate semi-autonomously. They set their own schedules. They manage their own quality. They solve their own problems, and so on. So, teams in high-performing organizations tend to be self-directed. High-performing organizations tend to invest heavily in their workforce, in learning and development, and growth, and such. So, it's basically a whole set of observations and then practices uh, around building high-performance organizations. Yes, and that sense I am familiar with that framework and there's there's so much I think here in, in this particular if you, if you just google HPO or high performance organizations and high performance and uh, self-actualization oh my gosh it's there's so much literature out there uh, and it doesn't have to be like scary there's lots of books on it I feel like we're kind of getting into like this lately I've seen a lot of folks who are really into you know, trying to to hack their way to this high performance lifestyle and mindset, and I've come to the conclusion that 
you know, there's, there's more than one way to get there and there's no two ways to, to high performance, right? Like there's so many resources available in this stage where we like where data and information is free flowing and wow, you can learn so many things about yourself and about your organization and the work that you're doing. There's really, in my opinion, no excuse why people shouldn't be aiming to have this as like the ultimate goal. Yeah. And go ahead, John. I was going to say, are you, are you speaking specifically in, as far as organizational design or more as like personal like development? Both. So like my, cause my interest in it is so many of us are spending, right. We spend so much of our time at work or on our way to work that really at the end of the day, it's in organization's best interest to be like focusing on this skill. And because I mean, whether you have people who are high performers at work or not, the goal is that, they, that you would want everyone to become a high performer or that you, could, that you could optimize everyone's life and everyone's optimization doesn't look the same, you know, uh, because some of us are born with able bodies and some of us are not, or some of us have, you know, more privilege than others. So I think if we just strive for this optimization and, you know, what I would say, this resiliency, that while we won't all be at the same place, we certainly would have greater lived experiences when we're together and especially at work in our communal spaces. Yeah. For me, this isn't just about the business value of resilience. For me, it's also an ethical issue, right? I think that high performance organizations or resilient organizations or whatever you want to call it also reduce the harm, the suffering of the people that work there compared to other organizations, right? So I think we have an obligation to build these organizations for the people who work in them. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, that's, I think that's a great point. So I wasn't able to articulate that, but I think that's actually where my interest is, is that, you know, because people, every business is in the business of basically employing people. I mean, we have some folks who are trying to have, you know, machines replace people. That's a different story, Amazon. But I think at the end of the day, we can't, we can't run from the fact that, people make up companies and communities. And so that being said, like it should be everyone's aspiration to, to sort of get people to this high performance uh, circumstance, right? Where, I mean, like I said, it doesn't have to be that everyone's high performance and resiliency looks the same, but if that can be a shared unified goal, like for example, when we're thinking about public and community health, oftentimes, or like when we're thinking about sustainable communities, we don't really hear conversations around resiliency. We hear things about sustainability, but I wonder if we swapped in the word resiliency or resilience, would our lived experiences change? I'm curious as to what, like how changing that word out would change the sort of manifested impact of say uh, like a neighborhood organization that's trying to improve the quality of life in a in a neighborhood if they changed it from sustainability to resiliency like what would like how would that change what they do even if the end goal was largely the same thing yeah i love that question and i'm waiting for shante so i feel like if we swapped out the word sustainability for resilience for example that we would see more of us striving for or being okay with and, and maybe like, you know, embodying this sort of um, mindset that we can change and adapt, especially when we have unforeseen things. When 
I think of the word sustainability, I think of homeostasis. I think of getting to a place where we're all kind of on the same page and being like, all right, let's maintain this. Like, I feel like sustainability also goes with maintenance. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, yeah, yeah. And right. And perhaps that like truly it's that sustainability would encompass resilience. I don't know. Cause that's probably what would actually require a complex and adaptive system to get bigger and better is you have to have, mm-hmm. you have to have these tilts. You cannot have homeostasis at all time for the uh, ecosystem to improve. Yeah. This may be a sort of, uncharitable characterization of, you know, how people who work on sustainability think, but just if you look at the word, right, it's more about maintaining a status quo than it is about adapting to change, right? Mm-hmm. For me, the difference in terminology for resilience is it's about acknowledging that there is no such thing as a static organization, right? Change is the constant. And so for an organization to be even sustainable, it has to be able to respond to change. And since it can't predict every change, it has to be resilient. So I think sustainability is impossible without resilience. And I I imagine a lot of people who work on sustainable orgs would probably agree with that. I mean, I don't want to put words in people's mouths, but I think they have a pretty robust understanding of sustainability. Yeah, I think so. I I I do think, though, that there's some some room for us to maybe to welcome this this resiliency or this resilient mindset just in everyday lives. Like, I don't know that I hear it a lot. I feel like sometimes it feels like a shiny thing that people are like, yeah, that's great. I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be resilient when I have more money or I'll be resilient when my situation, my circumstances get better. It's, and I'm, and I'm noticing this because often my, job you know allows me to have these sort of private conversations with people about like when when I'm coaching and whatnot about maybe why they want to change jobs or why they don't like work or why they are having a hard time asking for raises and or maybe why they should go back to school all these sort of different things it's a mindset that I'm noticing and there's a there's sort of a lack of this um, kind of positive twist to it which I think you know being able to withstand challenges or you know things that you didn't that you didn't foresee Mm -hmm. is a good thing and i have to coach people through that all the time yeah one thing that's tempting i think uh when we talk about resilience is talking about how to create resilience um i think it's really important to acknowledge the resilience that's already present in basically every system you know we all work at startups right basically So the fact that you're working at that startup means that startup has been already demonstrated incredible resilience compared to the 90% of startups that don't exist anymore, right? Yeah. So I think we need to start by acknowledging how resilient people and organizations already are just to continue to exist day to day. And so it's really about building on that foundation. Agreed. Totally. Right. Like reminding people that like even to have, you know, survived and and to be born into the world requires resiliency. Yeah. So for me, it's really about discovering or uncovering those sources of resilience that already exist and learning how to grow and nurture them. Mm. Yeah, that's a really good point. Because one of the things that occurred to me as we were saying this is that, like, the place you start at when you try to approach resilience or 
building that in yourself, for example, is sort of hugely important. You know, like if you've been beaten down and your life has just gone hor- from horrible thing to horrible thing, like building that resi- resilience is a lot harder, I think. I mean, you've already got some, and I think recognizing it is the, the way to, one of the great ways to start building it by realizing what's there and realizing that you do have some because you've made it this far. But I was thinking about also the, the sort of, to compare that against someone who's doing relatively well and hasn't endured a lot of trauma, that if they're trying to build resilience, they're coming at it from a completely different angle. And I would imagine the approaches in those two different situations are, are vastly different. True. Yeah. There was a psychologist, I can't, I wish I could think of her name. When I was studying this, getting my master's degree, one of the things she said was, um, you know, folks who experience a lot of trauma, one of the greatest privileges is just literally space and time. Like she said, have you ever noticed that these children who are in highly traumatizing environments, you know, they don't get a break ever, ever. And she said, sometimes those are like the most like tenacious children. Yet she said, they aren't quite, they don't even recognize that they're in the middle of chaos and trauma. And she said, but there's just, there's this great privilege and power in giving people space and time in order to actually acknowledge and to feel that they have survived something and say, wow, that was actually an act of resilience. And yeah, so it was quite interesting. Yeah, it's a really powerful frame to, especially, you know, if, if many, many terrible things have happened to phrase it as like, I've made it this far, I clearly have some ability to survive and, and some some of this that I could build upon rather than saying I'm starting from zero and uh, now I have to figure out how to become resilient. Yes. I guess the same, like you were saying, Rain, also the same applies to a, an organization. If it's still in existence, it's obviously developed some sort of resilience to the environment that it's being built in uh, and that in pulling out that those abilities to highlight them and build upon them is seems like a, a great technique for enhancing and perpetuating that resilience. Yeah. A metaphor I think that is useful here is adaptive capacity, which is our capacity to adapt to unforeseen circumstances. And it's a sort of, you can sort of think of it like, you know, a fuel tank. And every time you have to be adaptive, every time you have to demonstrate resilience, you spend, you know, you deplete some of that fuel. So actually the spoons metaphor is very similar to this, right? And so we all have some adaptive capacity. And one of the things that can make a larger organization resilient is our ability to share uh, individual units of adaptive capacity, which is basically people, to share that adaptive capacity with others, which is basically helping people. Yeah. That, so, like, adding extra support, like people adding extra support within an organization is one way to do that. Yeah. So one of the hidden things that happens throughout organizations all the time is that people are, are sharing adaptive capacity with others. It's people you know, asking for extra QA help to get this thing moved through the sprint. It's, you know, all sorts of things happening all the time, most of which are invisible, without which the organization effectively couldn't function. Yeah, and this actually brings up something that occurred to me right at the beginning of the episode, where where the two pillars that you were talking about were the, like, being able to rebound from a trauma 
and then being able to continuously adapt that adaptive capacity. So I think those mm-hmm. two together are pretty interesting because if you think of just the first one, like think about a human, they can technically rebound from a trauma, but they may rebound in a different shape than they were when they started. And then they will continue operating in that shape without extra like work yeah. or healing or, or whatever. And then, and so that can change the way they operate. And the same thing happens with an organization. If some, some assault comes from the outside and then the organization builds that scar tissue and that like, this is the only way we can survive kind of attitude that warps their behavior and that reduces their adaptive capacity. So thinking about those two together as being required, uh, I think is really interesting. Yeah. One of the really interesting things, and this is for me, something that an anti-fragile sort of gets wrong is that brittleness and resilience are actually not um, mutually exclusive. So for example, bone is quite brittle. It breaks. It doesn't really bend, right? But bone is also yeah. incredibly resilient. If you create the right conditions, it will heal itself. And in fact, mm-hmm. it can become stronger than before. Yeah, what, what was there was a talk at Redeploy about from a, a bone yeah. uh, doctor. Bone uh, doctor. Was, oh my uh, god, that's the worst like name. <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, Doctor Richard Cook. He's actually an anesthesiologist, but he's okay. also one of the sort of pioneers of resilience engineering. Yeah. It's a great talk. It's well, listen, uh, it's on YouTube. You should go find it. I mean, I, I I agree with both of you. I think that this those two pillars there are quite interesting, and I think you're right to point out that we don't want to misunderstand or you know basically attribute this anti resiliency to being the same as anti fragile. So thank you for for pointing that out. So for me, what's really interesting about this is that I want to convince organizations I work with, you know, my employer, for example, that they should become more resilient because it will help the people. It will reduce harm to the employees there, right? That's my motivation, but I can make a very strong business case for this as well. So I would rather not have to do that, but pragmatically speaking, I will do that, you know? (laughs) Right. I'm right there with you. I would love to, I feel the same way and have similar aspirations in terms of my personal and professional life, you know, and I would love to see all organizations be striving towards this. I want to see all communities and all individuals doing this. I, I really believe that um, this sort of resiliency, like I said, is it's one of these skills that um, we often are not really cognizant of or consciously teaching even younger people, but I would love to, to see us teach this to, to kids in pre-K, you know, it's really, really important. Just like self-agency, for example, uh, is super important because the more you can recognize resiliency and get comfortable with it, the more you can cultivate it and make it better. And by the time you know, if you went from five years old being introduced to this sort of simple thing and, and you evolve to a 25-year-old or a 50-year-old, wow. I mean, what, what a world of difference that could make for somebody. There's a sense for me in which this is somewhat similar to diversity and inclusion. And Shante, you're the expert here, so tell me if I'm speaking out of turn. But I see a lot of you know DNI directors and consultants. They focus on making a really good business case for DNI. You know, it improves performance, this and that. There's some great statistics out there. And for me, it's an ethical issue. You know, end of story, right? 
But what I what I get from talking to many of these people is that it's an ethical issue for them too. But they have to do what works. You know, they have to tell the yeah. story that that reaches the people who have the signing authority to hire them and give them money to do their jobs to make people's lives better. Right. Yeah, I, and I do. I think it's a good call out too to say it's like this. It's like the diversity and inclusion conversation. I would even argue to say that resiliency is more important than inclusion. And the reason why I say that is because, for example, like just as a person who has suffered, like I said, trauma or having issues of psychological safety at work and feeling like, hey, I might be triggered, or if I become my 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 trauma and my anxiety might be compounded by the fact that I'm living and actually operating in a really crappy work environment that, you know, let's say, let's say that I'm triggered and I, somebody's calling me a derogatory term, you know, first and foremost, we can't quite get to the conversation about inclusion until that person is like calm and, you know, would require some resiliency, actually some, some soft skill there that, you know, like, listen, I need to have composure and that this thing that happened to me does not necessarily define me. It, you know, this is how somebody might think of me, but definitely doesn't define me. And I am not that thing. And right. Like, so I think resiliency is a skill that I would put before inclusion or even before belongingness. You know, these are, these are complex systems and, and they're, you know, intertwined. And one of the things that happens is that diversity uh, improves resilience because you have more different ways of looking at problems. You have more different, you know, ways of being creative to come up with solutions and so on. So variety improves resilience. But the other thing is that if people are spending their adaptive capacity dealing with being discriminated against or excluded in the workplace, they're not going to have it for dealing with the problems of the workplace, you know, with dealing with like the business problems they're trying to solve. Exactly. So this has to be holistic, right? Yeah. You just nailed it. And I can't that be same can't that same thing be true for I mean, while we're talking about the workplace, but like think about a family, like where you know, you have these different folks and people in a family make up a unit and there's a trauma or there's a thing that happened, like you can't really get to the heart of issues without addressing these things, you know? Or, or acknowledging that there's that this is a thing. Arguably, the the focus on the atomic family rather than the you know community has, has made communities less resilient because it's reduced variety. You know, families are generally pretty homogeneous. You know, communities can be much more rich and diverse. Right. Uh, My family is not or, or not homogeneous or. It's, it's I have no idea how to pronounce that. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. But the, this is such a good, interesting conversation. I am curious though, like if we think about resilience or resiliency specifically within um, software development and code. You know, I feel like there's some, like for example, maybe in my circle of folks who I hang with, who are in, who are working like in the human resources or organizational development and learning and development, this is more of a common concept that we might, we might discuss, but I'm curious if like, this is something that you feel is out there and discuss and being discussed amongst folks in the software development industry or profession. Yeah. 
So I, I can say that resilience engineering, that sort of more formal discipline that is, has a bit of an academic flavor to it that, you know, we talked about David Woods, um, Richard Cook, John Elspaugh, who was the CTO of Etsy, is also a part of this. Um, a lot of folks, so resilience engineering orig- originated in fields like medicine and, and you know, and industry and aviation. But a lot of folks in resilience engineering are fascinated by technology because the rate of change, the rate at which you know these systems experience unforeseen events is so much greater in tech than it is in these other domains. And so basically, resilience plays out so much faster. It's basically just a, a much better place if you want to study resilience, you want to find a system that is changing as rapidly as possible, right? And tech is that. So a lot of people in the resilience engineering community are looking at tech as a sort of test bed for these ideas because of its unique characteristics. And we get to benefit from that. Yeah, yeah. it's really interesting. Like the like studying resilience in, for example, the Brookings Institution would probably take a lifetime because trying to gather enough data to see how it handles, you know, 50 yeah. or 100 years of change it would be yeah yeah exactly <laughs> i mean like back yeah. in the, the the 19th century you know you would have a lot of bridge failures but a bridge you know fails once in its lifetime right that's how that works um, right but software can fail millions of times a day <laughs> it's our super i mean that's not an exaggeration you know oh not at all and so, the the challenge of resilience and software is first of all the system so the argument that I would make is that software per se, software itself, cannot be resilient. It can only be robust because it, it only does what we've programmed it to do. Resilience comes from how humans operate software. So when it's expanded into the socio-technical system from just the technical right. system. So, you know, resilience in software comes from how humans respond to incidents and make decisions to make changes, you know, on the fly, right? The software itself can be made more robust, but it can't be made more resilient because resilient res- requires resilience requires responding to unknown unknowns. And that's not something software can do until, you know, the glorious AI future, which will never occur. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> I like that point though, but that like the software, software is there and runs as it runs. And then it doesn't, it doesn't change. It doesn't adapt except for some very limited cases. Until humans do things. Yeah. The software has to be incredibly robust to run it all. But then layered on top of this, there needs to be resilience in the ways we, you know, operate and maintain the software. Yeah, this is huge. I just Why aren't more people prioritizing this? I just thought of a parallel, again, between people and software. So there's a book called Rejection Proof about some guy who just decided that he was going to try and get rejected like 5,000 times in a year. So he would just ask random people for things and they would say, I'm not going to give you a dollar or whatever. Um, And so he got very, very comfortable with becoming rejected. So it's like as a way of building resilience around that sort of thing. And I'm thinking of the same, it's it's almost the same thing as the chaos monkey and the chaos simians at, at Netflix, where they build failure into the system so that the system constantly has to deal with that and is built with that in mind, like from the start. It's the same. I feel like it's the same thing. So it, it's very similar, actually. Casey Rosenthal and Nora Jones, who wrote 
the Chaos Engineering book have both spoken at Redeploy and are both pretty heavily involved in resilience engineering. Actually, Casey's talk at Redeploy 2019 is great, and everyone should go watch it. <laughs> All right. Awesome. I'm definitely going to go read up on this and find out more. But yeah, you're right. There is heavy overlap in those domains. And yeah. that's one of the ways that I think resilience engineering has been able to make, you know, headway into software is that people in software have already been thinking along those lines and have really latched onto resilience engineering as, oh, someone else has already thought out all this stuff and I can just go learn what they've already learned. Cool. You know, mm -hmm. right. it's already feeding back into the system and making it more resilient. It makes me also wonder, you know, what price we pay if we don't pay attention to to resiliency and prioritize it as we move into this, like like I said, this next fourth industrial revolution. Like, what price do we pay as you know humanity if we don't prioritize this? Because it's going to take not only this evolution of for humans to exist and to get better, but certainly within our software and technology requires a sort of being, I think, a pillar or a foundational sort of, you know, value and belief. So what's the price that we pay by not prioritizing it? I mean, to put, to find a point on it, existential risk. Yeah. These organizations will cease to exist. Well, and lives too. Like if your healthcare software is not resilient, people die. Autopilot, yeah. not resilient, people die. Like the software that's eating the world is becoming that central thing where, you know, the one bug causes everyone to get 10 times their dose of whatever medication and things like the, like the real world impacts now are magnified yeah. so colossally. Yeah. So for all those listening, <laughs> it's real. I believe that. I feel like it's got to be talked about more. I would love to just see this happening. I would love for this to be the buzzword of the century. <laughs> Well, I'll just say that I'm, I'm really happy that we had this conversation. It's definitely given me more questions than answers. And I'm looking forward to basically the minute we, you know, depart from this conversation to probably dive in some more because there's so much that I don't know. And I got to, we don't know what we don't know. So I'm making myself more resilient here, but I'm looking forward to, to just kind of seeing, like I said, seeing this conversation pop up more frequently and to become maybe a center or a pillar to people's, you know, organizational values and aspirations and certainly some underpinnings of, with the uh, software and development that we, we have going on in the tech world. Yeah, this is well-timed for me as well. I think that I'm really uh, starting to think about my technical organization uh, in different ways and, and this resilience feeds into that. It's also a great word to hang a lot of concepts on top of as a way of communicating, you know, what I'm want to get everyone else on board with. Uh, so this is particularly useful for me. So the last sort of major point that I would really like to get across, and this is sort of the theme of Richard Cook's talk about bone is that resilience, what we can do to make systems resilient, more resilient is, focus on creating the conditions in which the naturally occurring resilience in people can manifest themselves. So, for example, when a doctor sets a bone and puts it in a cast, they are not healing the bone. They are putting the bone into alignment 
and in a position where the the body can heal the bone. So a lot of quote unquote creating resilience is really about creating conditions in which people can perform at their best. And so that's why high performance is so relevant. And it's about creating conditions where people aren't artificially restricted, which goes to, you know, inclusion and, and other such things. So it's really about, for me, resilience is about creating the conditions that maximize everyone's potential. Oh, I couldn't have said it better. That's it. That's the definition. Wow. I'm going to have to um, borrow that from you, Rain. I love that. I love that. I so, want to have a conversation about this Yeah. again. So that's, that's why resilience is socialist to me. I know that sounded like a joke. It was not a joke. Resilience is No, I, I didn't take it that way. Yeah. <laughs>